0: Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff and I graduated from Omaha South High School.
1: And I'm Michael Ralph and I graduated from Dodge City High
0: School. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue.
1: So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer.
0: Today, we are drinking Absence of Light Peanut Butter Chocolate Milk Stout from the Four Hands Brewing Company. Smells good. I like the
1: artwork on the can. I'm not drinking it for the artwork. Looks like a stout, not a lot of carbonation, but uh, I'm excited to drink it all the same.
0: Uh, Smells good. I really do like the smell. Um... It. uh, it, I'm I'm probably uh, biased. I'm sure our beer vizier would say that, uh, but I feel like I'm about to drink a Reese's peanut butter cup. That's what I'm feeling. What are we doing today, Michael?
1: This month, we're talking about racism in U.S. education. Our first paper presents the experience of Black men who have been expelled from U.S. schools. Their stories highlight systemic problems that produce a school-to-prison pipeline that we must work to dismantle. Later, we read about gentrification of New York schools. Ties between whiteness and school resources undermine schools and black communities. We must break this link and provide equitable funding. Let's get started. This month, we're going to talk about race and systemic racism. And so this conversation may, may, uh, may cause some discomfort. Um, it's going to broach some personal topics and we, or I, I'll speak for myself, uh, may even, I may make mistakes, um, even within the context of this discussion and the way that I try to approach it. Um, and if, and when I do, I need to have the humility to sit and listen and, and hear those mistakes, um, but we're not going to shy away from the topic. This month, we are here to talk about uh, racism in US education. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing this whole 45 minutes.
0: Period. And the first paper does draw a connection between experiences that students have in school and uh, experiences that influence their interactions with the United States justice system.
1: Over the last several weeks, We've seen across the United States instances of protests and unrest in response to discriminatory police brutality. And so we're devoting this episode to look at issues of racism through the lens of our expertise and experience, which is U.S. education.
0: And my moral definition of good is the alleviation of the suffering of others, while evil is the indifference toward the suffering of others. So we choose not to be indifferent. So we must uh, swim in this uncomfortable disequilibrium so that we can do better. For our first segment, we read, Trying to Survive, Black Male Students' Understanding of the Role of Race and Racism in the School-to-Prison Pipeline, written by Dr. Jennifer Grace and Dr. Stephen Nelson. And this paper was provided to us for consumption by uh, Dr. Grace. Thank you very much. Without that contribution, this segment would not be possible.
1: Uh, so this paper was published in 2019 in Leadership and Policy in Schools. So it, it's hard and complicated uh, because this paper is about uh, young men who were expelled from school and that's not a happy situation or subject. But I really appreciated how um, this paper presented a lot of material related to um, the school to prison pipeline uh, in the United States. And I learned a whole lot learning reading this paper. Uh,
0: this paper did a good job of parallel. Uh, pa- drawing this sort of um consequential influence of school experiences to subsequent out of school experiences for black male citizens
1: what they did in essence was they talked to about uh, 10 um 10 black men who had been expelled from school for a number of different reasons uh, and talked to about their experiences in school, their experience related to the expulsion, um, and their just more general experience societally. Um, a lot of my notes section, you said consequential, a lot of my notes section is literally just a cause and effect diagram of here are things that are happening at this level or in this place in our system. And here are their consequences or here are the indicators for how we know those things are happening. Um, and so a lot of my notes section is just a network of the cause and effect and indicators um, for this this school to prison pipeline that the authors describe. Um, and so it's it's powerful because it lays out the interconnected, broad problem of racist systems in U.S. education.
0: And one of the things that they pointed out about racist systems that I think is really, really important for us as citizens and those listeners, those of us who are teachers, is to recognize that institutional racism is the sum of the unchecked biases of its contributors and its participants. So that means we have to be ever, if we are in any position of authority at all to make decisions about other people, then we have to make sure that we are monitoring ourselves and questioning our uh, motivations Uh, and concerns and fears when we are making those decisions. We should not be unclear. These unchecked biases have
1: consequences. Um, So if we're all just going to set our feet in the foundations of this system has racist outcomes, they exist and the authors present them. The national high school graduation rate of black males is 59%, while the overall graduation rate for white males is 80%. That's connected yeah that is that's I'm gonna say connected that's that's connected to an incarceration rate of black males that is four times higher than that of white males. uh
0: it does a good job of establishing patterns in our education system that result in alienation of black males from participating in that education system
1: uh, in my in in my diagram of cause and effect. I've I've kind of laid out some of those, those broad systemic outcomes they're caused by, and the authors identify a number of school level processes that produce some of these um, racially disparate outcomes. And that was the spot where I felt like as an educator um, was somewhere where I needed to spend some of my time thinking was what are some of the school level policies and behaviors and processes that are affecting different students differently. And in particular that are, that are, um, that are harming
0: students of color, black students in particular, black men in particular? Uh, they listed a lot, but there were three that were focused on in the paper. One, uh, there are uh, a non-equitable uh, application of discipline policies between black and white students. Uh, two, a overrepresentation of black males in special education programs. And three, black males perceiving that they're being held consistently to lower teacher and academic expectations. And those three things together uh, contribute to a uh, not just a disinvitation to participate, but an active um, repulsion to participate in their educational experience.
1: So, for instance, if you look more closely at the over enrollment in special education services, uh, you can see that they even point out a prior study that identified that black students are overrepresented in disability categories that are subjectively diagnosed and that are culturally stigmatized, but they are underrepresented in disability categories that are more objectively diagnosed and have less stigma. Uh, one of the things that that the paper highlights that I think it's important because it's important in our area is uh, they point out the impact of zero tolerance policies. And that's something that has been important to me. That's it's since before this month, uh, because it's, it's really easy to uh, misinterpret the impact of a zero tolerance policy because on its face, zero tolerance for violence. Well, sure, I don't want to tolerate people being violent in my school, so that's what's what's wrong with that. Uh, but it turns out there's quite a bit
0: wrong with that. So originally, these zero tolerance policies were designed to target bringing weapons into schools and bringing drugs into schools. Um, but what has happened with those policies is that they, they have also broadened uh, their application for all kinds of uh, school infractions, ranging from uh, attendance rules to dress codes, uh, and then insubordination and non compliance with uh, teacher directions. And as a consequence, some significant uh, penalties. Um, such as, uh, you know, suspension or expulsion, are being um, oh, uh, are being doled out, awarded. Significant penalties are in place, applied. Significant penalties, uh, such as expulsion and suspensions, are being applied in circumstances that are not serious student state safety issues.
1: Well, and the important piece of that is zero tolerance. What that actually means is no judgment. Like there's, there's no opportunity for, or there's no expectation of uh, a teacher or uh, some other faculty member who's engaging with the student and we hope building relationships with that student and has understanding the context within which the behavior has occurred um, to exercise their own judgment and understanding to navigate the situation. And so when you have something that's interpreted as noncompliance or insubordination or dangerous behavior is it just gets referred immediately to administrators and administrators with potentially unchecked biases and definitely with less um, understanding of the context within which these behaviors occur are then in a position where they just must apply punishment. And so this churn Happens where you have students, with especially black students, especially black male students, who are have their behaviors misinterpreted um, and falsely attributed with um, perceptions of aggression or noncompliance, and then this non this zero tolerance system kicks in, and so discipline gets applied before there's even. A meaningful opportunity for understanding to say that this was a misinterpretation that this student shouldn't be
0: expelled. It just when that discipline jumps to or escalates to suspension or expulsion, we then have the beginning of a system that separates the student from their education participation.
1: Well, and when you couple it with with other problematic education practices that are sadly still. Fairly prevalent. If I was gone for two days, and we have two days of direct instruction that marches on, and I come back, my even ability, even if I, even if I'm highly motivated to try to be successful in the day's content without access to the previous two days' content, how how can I be successful when I don't have access to that learning and the things that are being provided for me are not effective ways for me to develop competencies in those in those mechanisms? And so you have this um, this cross feeding of of problematic uh, system processes that ultimately result in the disenfranchisement. Is
0: that a bad word choice? No, no, I think disenfranchisement is exactly what's happening. Um, They are cut out of a sense of community and belonging with the organization, the educational institution. Um, uh, And there are other, there are other parts, you know, we talked about, um, uh, discriminatory disciplinary policies being one of three things that matter. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about the other two in a second uh, that contribute to that that feeling of disenfranchisement or being separated or being cut out of the education experience. Um, and I do want to get to those, but I want to go back to this disciplinary policy, this no zero, this zero tolerance policy. I remember in high school, um, uh in the nineties, when these were starting to be put into place and we'd see posters all over the school that say, you know, you can't bring knife to school. You can't bring a gun to school. You can't bring brass knuckles to school. You can't bring these weapons to school. You can't bring drugs to school. I remember that and that the teachers all talked to us. We had a big assembly and it was a real big deal. a zero policy. If it's here, you're suspended at the lease and possibly expelled. It's a real thing. You're going to have to deal with it. Well, i would a- actually, by that point in my life, have been carrying a pocket knife, a Swiss army knife with me everywhere for my, you know, since middle school. So I've been everywhere I go, I'd have this pocket knife. And so they put the zero tolerance policy in place. And I'm like, Oh, okay, well, I'm going to stop bringing that to school. And I do, I stopped bringing that to school, except that habits die hard. And one day I do, I bring it to school. I bring it to school. It's in my back pocket, just like it usually is. And I'm freaking out because I've got this zero tolerance knife in my back pocket. And I go to a counselor and I surrender the knife. That's what I do. And that counselor doesn't do what they're supposed to do. They keep it. They don't report it. And a couple days later, when my schedule allows after school, I go to their office and I get it and I leave. That is a failure to employ the zero tolerance policy. And that is that is an example of privilege right there.
1: I have the exact same story. I was in sixth grade. I had taken my backpack on a scouting a scouting trip over the weekend. And I had my knife in one of my small pockets that I'd failed to empty. And halfway through the day, I I discovered it was in there. I surrendered it to my teacher. And she took it. And that was the end of it. Like that was... That was the end of it. However, when I was teaching, I had a student um, who was a student of color. The student was not black, but the student was a student of color um, who came to me in the middle of my class of my class during like independent work time and said, hey, I have this firecracker in my pocket and somebody told me that I'm not allowed to have it here. Is that true? Is this dangerous? I said, yeah, (laughs) yeah, you're not supposed to have that. Uh, and he's like, well, okay, what what should I do with it? And I was like, well, we need to, you need to give that to your administrator. So I'll, I'll, I'll let them know to come down here and they can collect it from you and we'll be done with it. Uh, that student was suspended. That student was suspended. Uh, nobody asked my opinion. And honestly, it, if I, if I, I feel like I was a failure in that interaction because I probably should have had the foresight to know that was going to be the consequence of me advising him to surrender it to an administrator, and I should have shielded him from that. But I failed to do so. The student is trying to comply, but zero-tolerance policies don't provide the framework for teachers to be compliant and yet also respond to circumstance And so what happens is you like in California, the the news came out. I think I know we talked about it. I think that segment may have been cut in a previous episode about the California has now banned suspensions for some of these instances because they are so prevalent in being um, differentially applied.
0: Well, they do have unintended consequences, Um, and I think it's important to talk about that because this is something else that they report in the paper that the intent of perpetrators, the intent of the perpetrators of oppressive acts are irrelevant to the oppressed. And unintended emergent and disproportional consequences are institutionally racist, even if they do not explicitly target or involve racial demographics. So, um, unintention or lack of intention even even if the intentions are excellent, if the consequence is discriminatory, then the policy is racist. Can we talk about... Uh, so I think that we've hit the dis... Oh, I want to hit those three things. Um, discipline, um, inappropriate support, and inappropriate teacher relationships. That's kind of what I want to talk about. And it's a lot of their stories in the second half were about their relationship with teachers or lack of mentors or uh, or success stories with mentors. So the one of the second one of the other components of uh, that contributes to alienating black male students from participating in their education is that they consistently perceive that teachers had lower expectations for them academically, uh, and um, this to me, really struck a chord about student-teacher relationships. We know it's well-documented, well-supported that having a positive supportive relationship with teachers is a critical component to student growth and success. Uh, And students often identify those few Keystone teachers that they had exceptional relationships with during the course of their education when they're reflecting back on it. And what we're seeing is systemically Black males are not finding those teachers in their experience.
1: There, for instance, there was a news article published in one of our area um, news outlets two days ago, two days before this taping, uh, and the title of the article uh, begins literally the words, I cannot name one teacher who is not white. That's literally the title of the article. Um, so a, la- um, a lack of representation bet- of the student body and the teaching body is important for this problem uh, because the lack of shared experience contributes to um, those unchecked biases and the inability to uh, identify uh, intent and understand the meaning and context of behaviors is just the deep lack of shared life experience of the in the.
0: Teaching faculty. So the teachers are making judgments about student, students that are erroneous because they don't understand the students because they don't have uh, a bridge of common ground or common experience or common communication patterns. Their students uh, identify this misunderstanding as having lower behavioral expectations, lower academic expectations, lower belief in their own efficacy, and this message is communicated to them implicitly over and over and over again.
1: Uh, And sometimes explicitly, depending on the particular classroom circumstances, Uh, there's a really good book that lays this out that you and I have even uh, mentioned on this show before. Multiplication is for white people, describing some of the many implicit uh, instances of this message being delivered, and unfortunately, the great many explicit instances of this message getting delivered. And so I I made a short list of shoulds. Uh, This is a show about shoulds, and I don't often make a literal list of shoulds, but I did for this, this paper. Uh, and that is the first should that's on my list is uh, teachers have to build relationships with their students. Uh, know your students is a phrase we repeat on the show often, um, but it's not just know your It's not just relationships, um, but building uh, building common experience and building understanding of the divergent experience of others. Uh, and that has to include. Improving representation in our teaching faculty so that I have colleagues who do have the shared experience. So I have opportunities to learn from adults who can help me understand that shared experience because it shouldn't be the jobs of my students to teach me about their lives that shouldn't be their job. Their job is to learn. They're, they're here to grow what they know and can do. So I need to have access to colleagues and professional learning uh, opportunities and professional learning uh, reading sources and materials that can help me better understand those experiences. And that can't happen if I don't have that representation in my faculty.
0: And that should was directly suggested in this paper, as many of the, uh, the black male students that were telling their narratives said that uh, successful black male role models who have navigated the education system and have been successful in high school should be available to talk to students uh, and to have relationships with students. Uh, So those, that kind of relationship is valuable and missing, which means if you are in a position of authority to, uh, help promote your student body, you need to be finding teachers that can be used to identify that your students can identify with. You need to be able to, you need to be doing that.
1: And that, and you phrased it in a way that resonates with me of you need to go find those teachers and recruit them because there are teachers who have the training, have the expertise, who are excellent educators, and you should hire them school districts. Uh, so that notion of we post a job opening and well, the applicants, well, all of our applicants are white. And so shrug, where, what are we going to do, uh, is not good enough, period. It isn't good enough. You have to go recruit them because excellent educators uh, who are people of color and who are black in particular are out there. They do good work. Go find them. Uh, and your teachers need them. It'll, it'll make the lives of your faculty better. Uh, like it, it has so many benefits. We're in this together. Okay, for our second segment, we read another paper. This one is Modes of Belonging, Debating School
0: Demographics in Gentrifying New York. This was written by Alexandra Freitas and published in the American Education Research Journal in 2020.
1: This is another qualitative paper. This one is looking at New York City and at gentrification in schools. Um, this is, we're going to be talking about uh, segregation, uh, integration, Um, and issues of gentrification in New York schools in particular. And there's going to be a lot of overlapping themes with our first segment.
0: Yeah, I'd like to go over the process, uh, this author's process first. Um, Essentially, this is a documentation of um, a series of meetings and uh, forums uh, about uh, a certain district district lines being redrawn so that students who were living in one place would now go to a different school and how this is changing uh, the, the fu- uh, changing how the school functions and how the communities identify uh, with their schools.
1: And what I was taking away from this paper, as we go through the really robust descriptions of um, her observations and the narrative she builds from it is the discussion of segregation and integration and resegregation in American schools is a lot more complicated than I, than I, than I used to understand.
0: One of the uh, kind of starting positions is that for a long time, school districts have been drawn to be segregated. And that practice has uh, that practice in um, in in concert with school funding practices has given uh, schools with white students greater access to resources than schools with black students, uh, and this is not specific to New York. This has been happening for a long time all over our nation.
1: But the, the the thing that that I thought was important for me to understand was the complicated nature of segregation to begin with, because it is really important for all of us to understand that black schools do not equal bad schools. That's really important. And so there were these neighborhood schools that were serving as community hubs or community touch points. And they were important resources for the people in the community. And they were excellent schools that were majority, almost entirely black students. They were staffed by black faculty. They were run by black administrators and they were, they were excellent. They were awesome.
0: Uh, They had a lot of the, uh, they had a lot of strengths that were uh, discussed as weaknesses in the last paper where they had successful community role models. They had um, uh, a sense of inclusion to participate in the school system. Uh, the students were given time to to respond. They had the relationships um, and, and role models with their teachers to feel like they were invited to participate in their education. We have to get really clear.
1: We have to be really clear-eyed when we talk about um, are we are we talking about the racial demographics of the school? Are we talking about white students and we talk about black students? Are we talking about other students of color? Are we talking about class? Are we talking about a socioeconomic status, students of wealth or students from um, a lack of wealth background? Are we talking about resourcing and funding associated with those schools? And we need to be really clear about which things we're talking about in each situation. Um, And this is something that I hear a lot in my personal experience. Uh, It's really easy for some folks to slip into the, um, the practice of using class or SES status as a code for racial identities. And that's problematic, not only from reinforcing some of the deficit thinking models that can be applied to, to some of these problems, but also just being clear about what we mean because they are, they are related processes. They, they empirically uh, correlate in a lot of circumstances, especially here in the United States, but they are not the same. And so that was really useful for me in this paper as uh, the author laid out in a really clear way. Um, we have examples of schools with primarily black students taught by black faculty and run by black administrators in black communities can be really good schools. Whiteness is not required to be an
0: effective school. But if you take away all their resources, that's a problem. To try to um, simplify some of the complexities of this hugely complex issue, there were, uh, when I created a framework from my own understanding, in my schema, there were basically three positions that community members had for when these schools were becoming gentrified, uh, as the term that they used. And that is you had the individuals that would celebrate the increase in student body diversity. Learning how to live with and work with and be productive and compassionate and merciful with lots of different kinds of people is just good for people. So we, we like that the, the black schools are becoming more white and the white schools are becoming more black. And that's good for everybody. That was one of the general, uh, per, one of the general narratives of, of, of celebration. There was another body that had concern that, um, well, my student was going to a good school, but now they have to go to a school with fewer resources, so their academic options are, uh, they have less opportunity because they're going to a school that is worse. That was a second concern, uh, primarily experienced by the white uh, families being concerned that the quality of their kids education was declining, uh, when they go to another school. And then there was a third general, um, uh, uh, expression, which was, this is our community school. This is our identity. We identify with this school. We grow and are healthy and, and are, um, are tied to this school. Uh, the, the phrase in the paper belonging, the school belongs to us and we belong to it. Um, and so when you change the student body by adding a bunch of white, uh, affluent students to this body, they are going to change the way this school is run so that it is no longer representative of our selves and our community.
1: The third one is the most complicated, and so the author kind of built everything to that last one, but that was the one that really um, uh, was the source of new learning for me, was uh, the source where I didn't understand a lot of it, um, because the notion of reintegrating... a primarily black school with white students as the author laid out, as you just described, um, there's lots of proponents for integration that says, yeah, a mixture of students is categorically good, um, but gentrifying specifically. And they, they, the author gave a definition um, midway through the paper that I thought was useful um, to gentrify a school Uh, is to contain and marginalize and ultimately displace the priorities and concerns of low-income families and families of color. And so what's important is that the the issue of resources. Uh, So if we have a school that is primarily black, and then at a systemic level, we reduce, remove, and withhold the resources to operate that school, And so bringing in those affluent white families is a means of getting those resources to be able to operate the school. Then now you have a a purse strings connection of we have to have these white families in this school in order to have access to the resources, which means they have an outsized influence on our activities and our priorities because they are the ones who determine whether we're going to get the resources to operate. And so it's the connection of whiteness and resources because without the resources, we can't operate the school. And so that's really what the gentrification of school is about is you had this, you had or have this white flight um, phenomenon Of families leaving an area, but now we're seeing white return. And I I learned about that in this paper also, where you have, due to various societal processes, you have some white professional affluent, um, were all words that were used in this paper, that are moving into some of these neighborhoods and attending some of these schools. And with them come some of these resources, but then they can impose upon these schools their priorities and their activity preferences which then undermines the ability of the school to serve the community that's there and the community that has that has relied upon and that has benefited from that school um since long before those those um those white affluent families had moved into the area
0: it's an unfair standard um there was one principal who uh who saw that the changing demographic of increasing the white presence in the black schools was a practical acknowledgement of privilege that, um, those students who are coming to the school. Now, those, the increased, the increased body of white students, uh, increases the school resources, which work for priorities regarding infrastructure and, um, other opportunities, regardless of the instructional quality in the school, but the the opportunity for growth and expansion when you add white students to the school is greater than when you don't. So uh, he used the phrase, white middle-class students come with benefits. The consequence, the cost though, is the community identity and the leveraging of agency, because what they see is that the minority white students have a disproportionate louder voice when it comes to policy influencing at um school board community education uh, council and other uh levels uh
1: and that and that has kind of that has two consequences god it's so it's so big that there's nowhere to go right like i i just like I feel lost in the middle of the forest. Like there's just there's so many things that are important and that matter and they're all interconnected. But the because it's it's both. It's both, uh, I will wield my outsized influence in this school to make it like what I want it to be, irrespective of how that might impact the others who uh have a greater investment or equity in the school, or just the fact there are more people in fact impacted by my decision than ought to be. And also the notion that if I don't get what I want here, I can leave me and my family and the resources that come with me due to my privilege, and go to those other schools. This nebul- nebulous idea um, of the other schools that are ours, that are the the primarily uh, affluent, primarily white schools that uh, that are the uh, that are. Uh, Bastion, I don't know that I know that word well enough to be comfortable using it on air, but the, the, that these schools are ours. These schools are the white schools. And so, I can take my family over here and be at this, this other school. But if I don't get, I get what I want, I can always go back to our schools. So that sense of belonging, there was two distinct applications of it. It's both the sense of entitlement to the, our schools and the, um, the sense of uh, the right to wield influence at these, these other schools where I'm moving. And so I can choose to leave to go back to these other unassailable schools that are definitely mine.
0: Uh so, so let's talk about our lives. At the top of this show, we mentioned the high schools that we went to. And I think it would be fair to our audience that our audience understand that what our high school experiences were like. Uh so well tell me about the uh the demographics of the high school you went to, Mr. Ralph.
1: Yeah, so I graduated from Dodge City High School, and so today, according to US News and World,
0: yeah, World Report.
1: Yeah. Uh, the the demographics of that school today are 79 uh, percent Hispanic seventeen percent white and two percent black
0: and I graduated from Omaha South high school uh, and today that school has eighty percent Hispanic nine percent white and seven percent black um, my parents uh, well there's a there was a narrative in this paper about a parent who specifically put their their child white uh, Gosh, there's so many things I have to talk about. Uh, Okay, I want to tell this story so that I can tell another story. But before I can tell either of those stories, I've got to talk about the term middle class because the paper did a great job of saying – Okay, this this word is going to be used a few times during this paper, but uh, nobody really knows what it means because you had people calling themselves middle class when they owned million dollar homes. We had people who were paying $3,000 monthly rent calling themselves middle class. We had people calling the middle class because they were physically located in the middle of very high versus very low property values. Middle class was ill-defined by the people who use this term and since this term was a story about people discussing race it, it basically was a, uh, a, 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 a I don't know it's a smoky term it was a tough term so I'm going to use it in the spirit of the paper I'm going to use the word middle class who knows what that means Um, but there was a a mother who put her student in a you know, a primarily black school through choice as a crusade to bring diversity to the school to increase the um, the demographics so that they're not monolithic, so, you know, that we can, you know, I'm going to help participate in the saving of this school by putting my white child in this school. And that particular sentiment was... Discussed as being met with derision by the uh, original black community who identified that there was nothing wrong with our school and we do not need white students to fix our school. Um, so I thought that was very, very interesting narrative. Now, my parents made very specific choices for me to go to um, uh, minority Majority schools um, i don't I don't know how to say that any other way, and it wasn't to save the schools. they believed it was better for me to to see a wider diversity of people. They wanted me to go to school uh, in places where I could see things that I wasn't going to see at home. They, that's what they wanted. Uh, and so that was a conscious choice for them, but it was for my benefit, uh, not for the benefit of the school. Or the community.
1: Well, I I think it's an important distinction. Um, participating in communities, I think, is good. Like I I think it's good. Um, and so the distinction is to is to discard that that um, that seductive narrative of the white savior um, that can that can overcome. Uh, someone is I come in and I bring with me resources. And so I will save, I will save this, this poor uh, failing school by my presence. And even though the story that I tell myself may not be explicitly because I'm white, um, it comes with, it comes with it, that privilege of I bring with me the resources that come with, that come with my presence. And so I will make this uh this organization this institution that is inherently bad that must be inherently failing and I will I will save them
0: yeah it's racist i am white and i have resources and i can save your school that is racist uh and there's no, it's there's no such thing as benevolent racism it's 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 not a thing so um th- there it's, it's right to be indignant when someone is telling you that story uh I am, I am white and I can help you is racist. So um, don't do that. Empower each other. So how was the beer?
1: Uh, the beer was good. I enjoyed it. I've actually, I, I enjoyed it even more than the last couple of months' samplings, although I'll acknowledge I don't, I didn't catch much peanut butter. Uh,
0: You know what? I was saying I smell more peanut butter than I taste. I think. I think I smell more than I taste, and it was really acidic, more so than I think is typical. Maybe I'm wrong because hopefully one day our beer vizier will tell me that I'm wrong about the peanut butter chocolates out, but he can't access it, so this whole little thread will be because that's a big fat no that negatory good buddy and uh i'm gonna say slightly and i hate to do this but i'm gonna say i'm slightly disappointed in this beer
1: i wonder if some of what they have done to flavor this this is a milk stout which means acidity is surprising like it 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 doesn't have some of the hallmark characters of what I usually experience in milk stouts. And so I'm wondering if there were some other uh, carbon sources, some other sugar sources uh, that yielded some acidity that wouldn't have happened in a normal, I'm going to say, I'm going to say basic, whatever that means, uh, milk stout formulation that may be undermining some of those characters of milk stouts that are kind of hallmarks sometimes. Um, My guess is maybe. Thanks for joining us for yet Another Month. Uh, This is an important conversation. And so while it uh, it sometimes leads to a place of discomfort, it's something that we need to sit with and we need to navigate and we need to get better and we need to do it together. So uh, continue having those discussions, continue asking those questions, be willing to make mistakes and be willing to be corrected and get better um, when those mistakes are brought to your attention. And I will do the same. Um, We'll see you next month for our grand finale. Until then. We want to
0: improve, so as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.